So uh, if you looked at every religion in all of the world, if you went all across this world, and there's all sorts of religions. We're not just talking about Christianity, right? If we looked at all of those different religions, what you would see in every one of them is that they all have a way of living. They all teach you how to live. There's some way that you should operate your life. Many of them talk about how to connect with God. Maybe it even talks about you as God, getting in connection with your inner being or whatever it might be. But there's these kind of self-help models, and they help you to understand what it means to walk in a certain way through life. But You know, Christianity has something different. And let me just put it out there in the front. It has something very different. What it offers us is a way back when we've actually done something wrong. If we went back and we talked through our stories, yours and mine, and I asked you to share yours and you started telling the story, what we would find is places where we each went wrong, right? Anybody not mess up in their life? And we just want to say, you know, I, I did it right. I did it perfect from the get-go. No, nobody can do that, right? And yet religion easily becomes something where we learn how to walk out of failure in new behavioral patterns, but doesn't doesn't actually change us, doesn't actually transform us, doesn't offer us some new day. There's nothing new that really takes away all of that old history in most religions. And yet in Christianity, in the person of Jesus, that, that isn't the fact at all. Jesus offers us something completely different. I want to walk through just a little bit of a history lesson leading into it, and then we're going to talk about the cross. And Dave, you can flip on the PowerPoint behind me. Uh, the, the cross and what it offers us. You know, in the Old Testament, there were all of these feasts, all of these times when the people of Israel got together. God's people got together, and they got together seven times a year. They started with the Passover feast, and then they went to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then they went to the Feast of first fruits and the Pentecost Feast where they brought in their food after the harvest. Then there was this thing called the Feast of Trumpets, and then after that there was the Sixth Feast. And it may be, I don't know if I can quite say this, but it might be the most important of all of the things that the people of Israel celebrated. And unlike other feasts, when they would come to Jerusalem and they would gather and they would eat these gigantic meals, in this feast they wouldn't eat at all. When you say, why call it a feast? I, I've never been quite sure about that. But they call it the Feast of Yom Kippur. And, and they sit that, side, the, that day aside in their, in, their, in their calendar. And in the ancient world, they would gather in their homes, not in the worship place. And the, the high priest would lead the people from a distance through this sacrifice ceremony. And they would take two goats and they would say, you know, all year the people of Israel and the people of God, and just like you and I, have failed. We've done things wrong over and over and over again. Some of them are inadvertent. We don't know what they are. But there have been things between us and God that have, have caused us to not know him the way we were supposed to. And so they, they offered these goats. And they would, the high priest would come with two goats and one of them they would kill and they would sacrifice it. This is something we don't have to do anymore. Isn't that a blessing? But that, that goat would cover up the sin of the people for the last year. And they would say, God, please forgive us. We failed. We failed in all these different ways. And then there was this other goat. And this was called the Azazel goat. Nobody knows why. It's actually one of those weird words that nobody can explain. And they would pray that all the sins of the people of Israel, all of their nation's sins, would fall on that goat. And then there was one elected official who would take that goat and he would wander out into the wilderness where nobody could live. And he would... He would let that goat free out there in the desert with all of the sins of the people on it. That's ancient Judaism. You can read about that in Leviticus 16 if you have time. Look it up later on. It's there. 
But it was a way to get past sin. When the people of God failed God, there was a way to get past it. There was a way to move past our failures. And that is the most important thing that Christianity has to offer us. You know, when I look back at my friends, I know uh, I can tell you what the people who are closest to me, they've told me how they failed and I've told them how I've failed. And I got to tell you, some of the, the list looks a little iffy. You know, there's some things on it that they're not just, you know, normal life things. There's some pretty big failures in my friend list. And I've failed in some pretty big ways. And one of the things is to look at God and realize that he offers us this amazing gift of forgiveness. Now, today we're going to talk about what Jesus offers on the cross. And the title of the sermon is What Happens at the Cross. My mom is a grammarian. She's an English teacher. That is something that nobody should have to grow up with. I just want you to know, um, you know, when I say misspoken English sentences, she always, if I write them and she reads my blog, she knows. And then, oh, it's terrible. I get phone calls. Uh, Sometimes emails, more often phone calls. But this is actually grammatically wrong. What it says on the board right there is what happens at the cross. It should say what happened at the cross, right? 2,000 years ago, something happened at the cross. There was this great theologian. His name was Karl Barth, and he was traveling across the United States. This is about 100 years ago. He's long since died. But he was traveling across the, the United States, and somebody asked him, Karl, when did you get converted? When did you meet Jesus? And he said, well, I don't know what you mean by that, but I want you to know that when I became somebody who was capable of being saved was 2,000 years ago. You know, sometimes Christians say that, well, when did I get saved? You know, you've heard that term. Well, the answer is you got saved at the cross. Or maybe you have some conversion experience in your life where you accept what Jesus did on the cross for you and you decided to offer this, to accept this offer of a free gift of salvation. Or maybe you're like me and we realize that we're not altogether whole yet and we have this future salvation we're waiting for that's still out there. But in the midst of all this, we have a relationship with Jesus, and it happened, and it's happening, and it continues to happen at the cross. And all of those Yom Kippurs in the ancient world where goats were sacrificed, i got to tell you, they may have gotten people in the place where they were doing what God called them to do, but it never offered the ultimate sacrifice that was necessary for us to relate with God. Our failures, all the way back to Adam and Eve, have continued to compound, and they've gotten worse, not better. And we walk apart from God, unless we have this relationship with Jesus. Now, what we're going to walk through this morning is what happens at the cross. And I'm going to tell you that there's about three things we're going to trace through. And they're kind of interesting. Some of them you're going to say, well, I've heard that before. It's more of a teaching than a sermon. But at the end of the day, what I think is really important for Christians is that we easily forget what happened at that moment. We easily just say, well, hey, hey, welcome back, guys. Might as well, might as well stop. They're walking in. Hey, they've been on vacation. You're all tan. We're jealous. It's great. Welcome back to Parker Ford Church. Tim and Jen, thank you for making your way back. And again, after the service, there's a prayer time. Make sure you don't get up and leave at the end of the sermon because we really want to send Scott and Lindsay off. So there's this thing, going back to this idea, what happens at the cross? We have to look and kind of understand, okay, we would all say Jesus took the penalty for our sin. Okay, how does that even work? What actually happened? What happened in the spiritual world? What happened in our lives? What happens when we have this cross and it's, it's put against our sin? What happens? And so this morning I'm going to walk through a series of scriptures and you're going to have the opportunity to look at those with me and it's going to tell us what Jesus did. The first thing is he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid our price, right? 
Jesus paid our price. And this is what most Christians talk about when they talk about Jesus. In 1 John, it says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son, now listen to these words, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, at the beginning I told you that there was this great day, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement is what the Jews called it. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate moment where people can get back with God. After millions of failures on the human race's part, we get back to connect with God. He sent his son as this atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's the first thing Jesus did. He's the ultimate Yom Kippur. And all those little sacrifices were leading up to one gigantic moment when God set us free from our sins. But that's not all he did. You know, in Psalm 103, it says this, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, imagine that you were there on that Yom Kippur day in the ancient world, and you would have seen all of these sins piled onto this goat. And I don't know how that worked. It was some sort of mystical experience where the high priest had the power to put all these sins on the goat, and the goat goes wandering off. You know, we have Bible studies here at Parker Ford Church, and I was leading one in that in that room to your right over there a few years ago. And uh, I lost my whole study because a goat wandered past the window. Really, I mean, this really happened. People started to stand up and look out. There's a big goat, and it turns out our neighbors have goats, and there's one of their three goats can jump the fence, and it gets loose all the time. It helps us mow our lawn. It's no big deal. But, you know, if this goat, with all of those sins, as it was wandering around, came back, and you saw that goat in your backyard, you'd go, my goodness, what am I going to do, right? There's something mystical that happened here where God was saying, send all of those sins away. And it was a precursor, it was a foreshadowing, if you will, of what Jesus offered. It says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions, our sins from us. Jesus took those sins and he put them on the cross. He took all of that stuff from us. The first thing that happened is that we actually lose our sin. We lose our sin when we come to the cross of Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, nine says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't just say God doesn't see your sin and that it's somehow sitting there. It actually says that all of those failures, they go away. They're leaving you. They're re- being removed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Something is being birthed in this relationship with God through the power of Jesus Christ. And the sins are removed from our lives. You know, the funny thing about our relationships is that, you know, Shelby remembers my sins. We've been married 10 years, and she remembers my sins from 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. She remembers, she remembers sins that predated our marriage, you know. And, and, you know, some of them were worth remembering. They were pretty spectacular sins. Uh, God actually removes, in his eyes, he removes those things from us. The people around you might remember them. You ever hear somebody say, you know what, that person will never change. They are what they are. They're going to stay that way. They're, they're a cheater. They're a liar. They're a this, they're a that. And they're never going to be altered. That's the worst thing you're ever going to hear said about you in your, the history of your life. It's not true. Jesus can remove our sin. He can make us a new creation in him. And so the first thing is that he takes our sins and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. But then there's this other thing, and nobody likes to talk about it. And all week I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to speak this word. But it's in the Bible, right? I mean, you can't get by what's in the Bible. If you preach something else, then you're just, you're out to lunch. 
This is Romans 5, 9. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. First John tells us that God is love. And we love that God. He's love. Jesus at one point said, let the little children come unto me. We love that Jesus when he says, let the little children come unto me. What we don't like to hear is that God is angry. You know, we have this table in our living room or in our dining room rather and recently uh shelby painted it blue it's this beautiful blue it really is it's cool and it was the we set it aside as a kid's table all their educational stuff is set up on it in these shelves and i came uh into the dining room the other day and part of it was green really like a mint green like a really weird shade of green and you know i was just like oh no one of my kids got loose with the paint and uh, painted the whole well, part of the table on the very top end of it. And, you know, I went to Home Depot so quickly and matched that blue paint. We didn't have any left. I went and spent the money, got a whole new thing of paint, and I covered the whole top of it because, you know, there was part of me that just recoiled at the sight of this green paint on top of that blue paint. You know, I just can't do that. You ever see something that clashes, you know what, you, what, what I mean by that. Well, God is so righteous. He's so pure. He's so good that he recoils at sin. Imagine this. God creates this perfect world and he puts people in charge of it. And it's supposed to be this beautiful creation where we add to it. We manage it. We take care of it. We build it into an even more beautiful place through his power working in us. And what we do instead is we do this terrible thing called sin. And whatever it is, it's looking God in the face and saying, we want to do our life our way. You want it this way, we want it that way. And in the middle of that, what happens is God absolutely goes, that's going to destroy my creation. It wrecks what I made. You're hurting yourselves. You're hurting the world around you. And he recoils. The word in the Bible for that is wrath. And it says that God is righteous. And he absolutely has to be the judge. And if he's not the judge, then something is terribly wrong. And we have lost all our moral compass on this planet because God understands the right and the wrong. And I'm not very sure anymore that most of us do. We have to get back to this God to understand it. And so if he weren't righteous, well, then he wouldn't be angry, but he also wouldn't be the source of our hope. And we wouldn't have the solution. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus answers God's righteousness. And what happens there is when he was sacrificed on the cross, when he offered himself for our sins, then we had the power to walk back into a relationship with God without God being angry with us. Now, don't think that God was some mean judge in heaven sending Jesus to do this act. The fact is God actually invented the whole thing. He knew his character, and he also wanted us to find a way through that character and have a solution for the problem that separated us with God. So the first thing that Jesus did was he paid the penalty for our sins. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west through his power, and he also, at the cross, does this amazing work of getting us right with God and purifying us and making us capable of having a relationship with him. No longer do we have to be afraid of this angry God. You know, many of us walk in a certain amount of guilt, and at this point, I got to tell you, if you believe in this message, if you believe in what God offers in this story, then what Jesus did on the cross takes away all guilt. And what we do when we sit back and we remember our sins, I said Shelby remembers our, my sins. I got to tell you, she's a very forgiving person. She's wonderful. But I'll tell you who isn't. I'm not. What I remember about my sins is worse than what anybody else remembers about me. I seem to always have this guilt issue where I have to go to God and realize this stuff over again. So I've confessed this sin, and God has been promising to faithfully and just in his justice forgive us and cleanse us, and yet I don't accept it. Have you ever had that feeling? 
And it's when we don't accept what happens at the cross that we get ourselves into trouble with this false guilt, this hurt that damages us, this shame that takes away from our life in Christ. So the first thing that God offers us is through this cross of Jesus Christ, the price for our sins is paid. But then he goes on. We have an enemy. And, you know, some churches really like to talk about this enemy. I think some churches really enjoy talking about our enemy. The rest of us don't like talking about our enemy, okay? And we're one of those churches that, generally speaking, if you're here for the first time, you don't hear that much around here about that. But what we know is that our world is actually under the influence of someone who dislikes us intensely. Genesis 3 tells us that God puts us in this position of leadership, but we actually took our leadership and gave it over to someone else. In the Genesis, it tells us it was a serpent. The rest of the Bible refers to him as Satan or the devil, and it talks about the thousands and who knows how many legions of dark angels, these beings that are, that are evil. And they're actually out there. They're for real. Now, if you don't believe this, I'm sorry. I'd love to tell you stories that would probably help you to realize that this is for real, okay? When you get into a place where there is a tremendous amount of spiritual dark power, you start to believe. And a few times in my life, I've been in those locations, and I've noticed this enemy is real. The writer of Hebrews writes about it this way, Jesus' work. And becoming a man does this. Since the children of flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So let me break this down for you. Jesus becomes a human being, and he becomes a human being because all of the human beings on this planet have failed. We've already agreed on that, right? Jesus is the only one who never fails. Early in his ministry, Satan has this great idea. He says, well, the Son of God is here, and he's living as this perfect human being, and the authority of the human race is in danger of being restored through this person who's not failing. So Satan comes up with this brilliant idea. He says, well, I'll tempt him. And he's, you remember the story. He's in the wilderness, and he says, listen, turn this stone into a loaf of bread, and Jesus gets through that test okay. Then he says, throw yourself off of the temple and command the angels to save you. And Jesus says, that's not for me. This is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And then he offers them the ultimate, the ultimate temptation. He says, listen, I will make you the Lord of this whole planet. All of the nations of earth will bow down to you if you will worship me, Satan. And Jesus passes that one too. And Satan goes away and leaves him alone, according to the scriptures. What happens in the ministry of Jesus is that he walked through the temptations that you and I walked through. You know, we've been tempted, right? But the difference is we fail. We flop. At some point or another, we've laid it all on the ground and just kind of fallen apart. And what Jesus did was became a human being to conquer the power of death, that is the devil, and free all those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He didn't need to be afraid because he didn't have this sin in his life. He didn't have this terrible, tempting problem that we have. He felt all of that stuff, but he didn't give in to it. But then there's this next set of the divine narrative, the story of God, where Satan comes up with a plan and he says, well, if I can't tempt Jesus into failing, well, then I'm going to do something else. And it's a brilliant plan when you think about it. I'm going to turn all of the religious leaders of this guy's day against him and against the plan of God. I'm going to take all of that power that this God has and I'm going to use it against himself and I'm going to use it by turning the religious leaders of the Judaic faith against Jesus. And the high priests and the Sanhedrin and all of the people of ancient Israel turn on Jesus. And we know how this story culminates. They pay Judas 30 pieces of silver. And the, the 
Judas leads them to Jesus as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane on Thursday night of Passion Week. And on that night, he betrays him with a kiss. And Satan is conspiring to do this work of killing Jesus. He's using the religious leaders of Jesus' day to do it. He's using Judas to do it, but he's actually deciding, okay, if I can't tempt him into failure, well, then he took on this form of a human being. He's a human man. Well, then we can kill him. And it's brilliant when you think about it because, you know, revolutionaries die, right? I have this shirt that somebody on High Street gave me. I have no idea why they gave it to me, but it has pictures of Che Guevara. Remember Che Guevara? And he was a South American and, and Central American uh, revolutionary. And he, and he died. He's not around anymore. And the shirt says that great revolutions fail for want of a single gift, the ability to sell T-shirts. That's what my shirt says. Well, Che Guevara is not around. And quite frankly, most of the world's revolutionaries are not around. And Satan has been watching revolutionaries since the very beginning. And what he was aware of is that revolutionaries all go the same way. They end up dying. That's how they get to the place where they're going. But with Jesus, he decides that we can go that way as well. And the religious leaders conspire against him. And you've heard the story. And Satan is working this amazing path. And at this point, maybe for one of the rare moments in history, God and Satan, unbeknownst to Satan, agree on this path. Different than every other moment I can think of where Jesus and Satan seem to be doing opposite things, Jesus starts to give in. And Satan says, I'm going to make sure you die. And Jesus seems to submit to that. And they finally get to the place where the cross happens. And you know what Satan thinks? I won. He died. At 3 o'clock on that Friday afternoon of Good Friday 2,000 years ago, Satan actually thought, this is the end. It's over. I have finally conquered. And yet what we know is something very different happened. Let me read for you from a different passage of Scripture. This is Colossians 2, 14 and 15. It says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed, listen to this, the powers and authorities. Those are Paul's words. Powers and authorities are the words for Satan. He is the leader of this planet up until the moment when Jesus dies on the cross and rises from the dead. From that moment till now, Satan's doom has been secure. We've known God won. But before that, Satan actually thought he had a chance. And so, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus took every one person's sin, every person who's ever failed in this planet, he puts it on himself, and he goes to the cross, and he, he gets nailed to the cross. And Satan and every demon on this planet says, this is the most wonderful moment. We finally conquered God's plan on earth. We've finally done what needed doing, and we've ended God's great plan. And what they've done is just cemented it. You know, when you go back in history, I can only imagine what Satan was thinking in all those Yom Kippur days through the history of the world. He thought when every person failed in Israel, he thought he'd get past, that they would never get back to connect with God. And then this Yom Kippur thing, invented by God to get past sin, reconnected the people over and over again every year. People reconnecting, being forgiven. Satan hated it. Year in and year out, Yom Kippur was his worst day. It was the day that people connected with God. And it is what Satan fears and hates and loathes the most. And yet in the murder of Jesus the Christ, conspired by Satan, what actually happens is that the God of the universe and Satan work together to accomplish the final Yom Kippur. And Satan, who thought he was powerful, and Satan, who thought he was going to win the day, actually, as it turns out, loses the day on the moment of his greatest victory. 
Now, everybody on this planet faces this truly epic battle with this enemy. He's for real. And he's not God's ultimate opposite. Frankly, God can overpower him any day. He's our problem. We have a very difficult time with Satan. We have a very difficult time with the spiritual warfare where you see some territory, some land that is somehow degraded, where you see a big drug problem, where you see people falling into addictions, where you see lifestyles that are getting on the wrong side of what God's plan was. What you always know is that there's this temptation behind it. And behind that temptation, there is a spiritual force and he's leading people astray. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brothers. He's constantly whispering in people's ears saying, you're not that good. You're not loved by your God. You're not cared for. You're not this great person that God says you are. You know, when I lead people to Christ, when somebody comes into my office and they say, I would like to know Jesus, the most difficult thing is always to convince them that God actually does love them. And that's because this enemy has had a field day over and over and over again, speaking into our ears, helping us to understand ourselves in all of the wrong ways, deceiving us, telling us we're something that we're not. God loves the human race. He has always loved the human race. And he has sent his son to make sure that this enemy will be taken care of. The problem is we don't buy it. We don't buy it, right? There's a third category. Jesus changed our world. And it continues to change our world. I want to tell you just a little bit of a story. Uh, it goes back a couple of centuries. It's a guy by the name of William Wilberforce, real short guy, real small. But it turns out he has a brilliant intellect. And people love to hear him talk. He's in the 1700s of Great Britain, and he, he became a politician early on. He starts this partying lifestyle, and he actually parties with the right people. You know what I mean? I mean, there's all sorts of the wrong people to party with. He actually parties with a guy called William Pitt, who is the prime minister of England's son. And William Pitt the Younger will soon become the next prime minister of England. And so he becomes part of this really cool crowd of people. They're all of the most intelligent, fun people of their day. And he partied late into the night, night after night, had a great time. And then he went on a trip touring the European continent. And something happened to him. Nobody's quite sure what happened, but he started to read the Bible. It's a dangerous thing to read the Bible. And he picked up this book and he got up early in the morning and he started to read it. And in 1785, something happened inside of him. And he converted to Christianity. Now, he'd always attended church, you know, half the time hungover, but he'd, he'd gone. But now he was looking at this, and he realized that the teachings of Jesus had serious power. And in 1785, he made this commitment to follow Christ, and his life was changed. And he started to collect those friends. They were still the smart ones, but they were also people who were interested in the plan of Jesus for the world in which they were living. And they declared a reformation of manners in England. It was in a time when there was a horrible problem with prostitution and the slums were filled with little children who were taken advantage of. And there was all of these terrible moral evils. There was this spiritual malaise over Great Britain and people were not following Jesus by any means. And so he started to enact laws. And the way he did this, he, when he became a Christian, he decided, you know, maybe I should uh, become a pastor. And he went back to his old pastor from when he was a kid. And he said, do you think I should become a pastor? And his pastor said, no, 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 no. We have enough pastors. Honestly, we don't need more people who preach. That was great news. I mean, you know, that, the world got saved in this one moment, in one sense. John Newton, his pastor, said this. And he said, no, what you should become is a politician. And he ends up in the he ends up in the, in the government in England. 
And he starts to enact these laws to let the little children free, and he shortens their work days, and he blesses them with this peaceful life instead of this terrible way they've been living. He makes prostitution something that's not a good thing in their culture. But maybe his greatest leadership accomplishment was that he actually enacted laws that by the end of his life, slavery became illegal in Great Britain, long before it would become illegal in the United States. One of the ways he did this was he looked at the Indian continent, And this was in an era when the English were in charge of India. And he noticed that the English were ruling India with the idea that they were getting power and they were taking advantage of the Indian people. They were making them work. You you might have to grow your cotton in India, but then you'd ship all that cotton in England where they would make the clothes and you had to buy the English clothes back in India at exorbitant rates. So Wilberforce has this brilliant idea. And he says, you know what we need to do is infiltrate the government with people who love Indians instead of people who are trying to take advantage of them. And the East India Company, which was in charge of the Indian subcontinent, becomes infiltrated with Christians who start to take seriously the job of educating and blessing the people of India instead of taking advantage of them. And eventually, universities were founded. And eventually, the world turned around and people started to recognize that slavery was wrong. And all of these things that Wilberforce was talking about long before that happened in the United States, all of that came from just this conversation with Jesus as a man was traveling across Europe. You know, the teachings of Jesus are powerful. Let me read for you. This is from John chapter 8. It says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Jews are scandalized by this. They don't like this sort of thing. They say, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who is a sin who has sinned is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know, sometimes people look at the Bible and they say it's filled with rules, right? You've heard this? The Bible is filled with rules. But those rules are there as teachings to set us free from a power that's always been on this planet. It was the power that has undone any number of different cultures and civilizations in the history of the world. And we could talk about the fact that in the middle of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln picked up his Bible and started to turn to Jesus. We could talk about Martin Luther King Jr. We could talk about any number of great reformers. We could talk about Dwight L. Moody or Jonathan Edwards or people of history who when you look at their lives, you realize they were people who took the teachings of Jesus seriously. And then they went out and they became educators and creative thinkers and people who legislated changes. And whatever it was, they became people who changed their culture. The cross does one thing for us and that it saves us from the eternal wrath of God. And it sets us free from all those sins. And it does this other thing and it sets us free from the power of Satan if we choose to accept that. If we choose to accept what God's power through us can do in the spiritual world, then we will be set free from our enemy. But then it does something else. It transforms culture. It transforms the world in which we live, making education important once again, making people's lives gifted with the plan of God instead of being people who just kind of look out for the rules of God. That's what the cross accomplished. That's far more than what I used to think when I was just a little kid. And every summer I'd go off to camp and they'd say, do you want to meet Jesus and do you want to escape hell? And I'd say, yes, that's me, you know? The cross does mighty work of transforming our lives and shaping our spirits and creating this possibility for us to walk with God. I want to move forward and we're going to close. I'm going to try to get us out a little early because of what comes next. But there's this final question that lingers in my heart and my head. 
about all this. If the cross does all these things, so what should we do? And the first thing we should do is that we have to believe it. You know, I'm convinced that Christians don't really believe in the cross. In fact, when I look over my life, I will tell you that I look at my existence and I say, there's some moments when it just doesn't look like Josh Bitework buys it with all of who he is. You know, either this truth that Jesus died for the penalty of our sins and takes it all away from us is absolutely fact or else it's not. And if it is fact, then it changes everything outside of these four walls, not just inside, right? It's not just a personal faith. It's the way where everyone in this planet has the opportunity of knowing God and walking in life and giving that great, getting that great grace that Jesus offers. But, you know, we kind of keep that bottled up inside of us. We're a little bit afraid and our spirits are a little bit shrunk and we don't have the spiritual power to do it. And I think that's because of the second deal that Jesus offers us. Jesus defeated our enemy. And the response to that is we should pray. You know, you know what prayer accomplishes? What does prayer do? You know, people say prayer is powerful. I don't think prayer is powerful at all. I don't think prayer accomplishes anything. In fact, I think of all the times I've prayed in my life, there's not one moment when prayer has done a thing. You know, statistically, it's, it's fact that most Americans pray every week of their life. Between 25 and 30% of us go to church on Sunday, but most of us pray sometime in our week. Isn't that strange? And I don't believe that most prayer actually accomplishes a thing. This is the most scary truth of the morning, isn't it? I believe God changes things. And I believe that what the scriptures tell us is that when Jesus died on the cross, he defeated this enemy and that God is willing to act if we are willing to unite our hearts with him in prayer. But it's God who does this thing, not us. It's not because we're praying that something changes. It's because God has chosen to operate this way, listening to our prayers. I don't know why he chose to work this way. I have no idea why he decided to make prayer the impetus, the change agent in our world. But what I know is that when it comes to defeating our enemy, when it comes to walking in victory over what Satan does on this planet, what is the most important thing you're ever going to hear is that you've got to get on your knees. And it's going to be that connection between you and God that's going to turn into him taking authority. It's going to turn him into empowering people to walk in a different way. Shelby and I faced a monstrous week this past week with things going wrong all across our lives. Some of our family members, we had some difficulty and some friends had some difficulty. And in the early part of the week, there was a really good chance that one of our friends, a really close person to us, was going to be put in a, in a, in a hospital. And she had decided that she wasn't going to walk with God the way that I would consider walking with God. You know, it just she was walking apart from it. And whether they were going to continue in their relationship, they were out of cash, out of spiritual wholeness, out of spiritual health, and all of that was going on on Monday. And on Friday, I got a call, and they got a house that somebody gave them, and there were finances flowing, and there was this hope reborn, and there was this spiritual connection that had rejuvenated them all in five days. And all we had done in that time period was prayed just in that time period. Now I can tell you that honestly, I don't believe prayer changed anything. What I believe is that God reached into our friends' lives and he transformed them. He offered them hope and he moved in these unexpected ways. And he moved around the tectonic plates surrounding these people until they ended up in a good spot. But that's God, right? If you're not praying, You're not joining the battle. 
the battle for your life and the battle for our world and the battle for what God's doing on this planet has everything to do with Jesus defeating our enemy, not us defeating our enemy, and has everything to do with us praying and getting connected with our God. Just being in that intimate place where we walk with him daily, one-on-one in a relationship, that is what God has called us to. So Jesus first paid our price, and our job is to believe. The second thing is Jesus defeated our enemy, but our job is we have to pray. We have to get connected. The third thing is Jesus changed our world, and what should we do? We should learn. You know, there's this old psalm. It's in the middle of the Bible. It's the longest chapter, Psalm 119. In the middle of it, it has this line that says, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The teachings of Jesus are this thing that illuminates the path in front of us and offers us the way through life, and it changes whole cultures, like William Wilberforce did, setting people free throughout his life because he listened to the teachings of Jesus. It's life-altering. It's true. It's valuable, and it changes the world around us. And the cross offers us this possibility, not only of personal salvation, not only of a conquering over an enemy, but actually it offers us this new way of life. Jesus' teachings, which are all throughout the New Testament, and you should check them out, they're amazing, transform our lives. They give us new hope. I want to close with this. Jesus in Luke chapter 10 has this idea. He wants to send out these 72 people, these 72 guys, and he gives them authority over the enemy. And he says, go pray for people and go heal them and go see what happens if you start to minister. Watch what happens if the 72 of you will just go and take me seriously, okay? And they did. They, they, they thought that Jesus was the answer. They believed in the truth that he was teaching. They believed in the power that he offered over Satan. And they believed he was the way, the truth, and the life. And they go out there and the the world changes around them. There's these things that shift around and and they, they know and they come back and they say these words. The 72 returned with joy. And they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I just want to, Highlight two points about this, okay? He saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 72 guys go out and they take Jesus seriously. 72 is fewer people than we've had in each of our services this week. 72, I have, I, I, I think I have about nine times that on my Facebook friends list, you know? 72 people, you're going to see that by 10 in the morning. You see that many people by 10 in the morning. 72 people is not a large number of people. And yet these guys take Jesus seriously and they go out and they pray. And Jesus says, you know what? It spiritually changed all of northern Israel. We wonder why people don't believe in the gospel. We wonder why our kids don't understand the truth that we all think is the right truth. And the answer might be because we haven't connected in this way that these 72 guys did. People started to believe in Jesus because these 72 people went out and prayed and people started to follow Christ and said, you know what? It spiritually is starting to make sense because of what Jesus offered through these 72 people. It wasn't their power. It was God's power operating in them. And then he says, you know what? It's not that big a deal to be powerful, guys. The second point, it's not that big a deal. It's not that amazing to somehow think that you can cast out a demon. That's really elementary education. The really big deal is that you have a connection with Jesus at all. The really big deal in the words of Jesus, however, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are in heaven. 
It's not an amazing thing to think that you can be a part of God's plan. What's amazing is to think that he loves you for who you are and that he cares about you where you sit and that he wants you to be a part of his plan and he created a plan that included you. That isn't something he had to have done. And so when we look at the darkness of our world, I want to ask you a question. Have you taken seriously what you're supposed to do in the world you're living in? Because if you're not praying, if you're not connected with Jesus, if you're not believing this with all of your heart and your soul, if you're not learning and growing in what Jesus' truth is really about, then you're leaving part of what the cross accomplished out. It's not something that just happened back there 2,000 years ago. It's something that's happening today. It's something that's spiritually powerful in our lives today. And it's something where God wants to change the world around us today. Jesus is not okay with what happens around us in our schools, in our communities, in our homes, in our, in our workplaces. He's not okay with those things that defy what his plan was. He's not a terrible despot who takes over the planet and destroys things and does this terrible work. What he is is a benevolent God who wants to love and, and bless. And he offered us this way out, and we don't easily take it. And so 72 guys in the life of Jesus take it seriously just for a little bit of time. And he says, you know what? I even saw Satan himself, who's so powerful, fall from heaven like a bit of lightning. You guys have just captured what it was to live out the plan of God in a geographic region. You know, our church has decided that this year is a year that we're supposed to go after God in prayer. And there's a reason why we're supposed to go after God in prayer. Many of you are giving your time in prayer. And of course, on our church staff, we've sent me to be a prayer warrior. And most weeks, that's where I spend most of my time. But there's a real reason why this is. It's because when we connect with God, he changes the world around us. He loves the people that are surrounding us. He loves the world that we are so hard, so finding difficult to reach. And so I would ask you, are you giving your life to prayer? Are you giving your life to what it really means to be a person of the cross? Are you believing? Are you praying? Are you learning and growing in this truth of what Jesus offers you? Join me in prayer.